0: There's a real crisis, an expected crisis, actually. If you read the scripture, in the way in which scripture anticipated that in the last days there would be a lot of false teaching from scripture, from within the church, and so this class is meant to respond to the very clarion call, all through the pastoral epistles, etc., that that the church has a responsibility um, to to clarify and to uh, and to study scripture and help people how to study scripture in a way that that can produce good and orthodox teachings so that's what we're doing and then of course we talked about several other things so we are doing this in the context of a bit of a crisis um, and we are in a crisis if you were to if you were to describe yourself as as evangelical increasingly those who who understand the, tradi- the orthodox tradition of the church will tell you that evangelicals are are sadly uh more and more being defined by a social position than they are by a theological position. And um, and in that theological position, they will look more and more akin, especially in the way they read the Bible, to some of the very classic sort of of, of, of aspects that's been described as liberalism, academic liberalism, or even neo-orthodoxy. Now, we we've, we've talked some about that, and so what we're trying to do is is clarify some things. And I recognize, I've had some conversations with you that some of what we're saying, you're gonna go, wow, that's blowing my mind. Uh, I, you know, and I know that many of you are gonna to say to me, God, I've done that or I've said that. And that's all right, okay? That's all right. Take a deep breath. You know, everything you heard today, adoption, remember all that? And so but so let's don't let let our insecurity and identity prevent us from learning. Let's just go back and examine scripture and see how we are to understand scripture. And we have a very high view of the laity here. And, and what I mean by that is that, that we're, we're covering things that I think is very uh, uh, accessible to you. Um, this is not something just for the church to know. And so that's the idea of this. Now, what we're doing is we're in the middle of this crisis description. And what are the causes or the roots of that crisis? Uh, the first week, you remember, that we looked at um, the social roots of the crisis in, in uh, biblical hermeneutics, uh, you know post enlightened modernity kinds of characteristics that have that bled into the American evangelical culture especially that allows us to read the scripture in ways that would have been unheard of historically. <clears throat> Two, we looked at some we just touch base and you have to read and a lot of it's a lot more of what we have not said is in your handout. so you can go back and review that. but we touch base on the philosophical roots of, of, of the crisis. Um, based on things like historicism and some other things, um, then last week we began a kind of. There's a lot of confusion theologically, uh, confusion that relates to the role of the Holy Spirit in interpretation, confusion that relates to the doctrine of priesthood of believers and in interpretation, confusion that relates to the role of the church and in interpretation, and even confusion that relates to the biblical doctrine of inspiration. So we're picking up with that conversation now, okay? That's where we are. And where I want to get this, and I hope that I'm going to have to, you're going to have to let me be a little bit cursory. Again, you've got a very robust study guide here that's complemented with other study guides if you go on to the section. So some of this is kind of a directed learning course is the way I see it. Now the good news, just for y'all that that feel that this is a little bit overwhelming, it is, and that's all right. It's actually intended, just so you understand what's going on. After, not next week, we're going to look at the covenantal uh, aspect, the whole issue of covenant and how to read the Bible with a covenantal hermeneutic, we call it. Um, after that, it's going to get a lot easier, and I really mean that. In other words, if you look at the handouts, at least the ones that I've put on there, they're two pages long um, because we're focusing now on something very specific and narrow, which is the genre and how to, what's the key that unlocks interpreting each of the different genres of scripture whether it's a narrative whether it's apocalyptic literature whether it's the epistles we'll go through all sorts of different types of genres and say now here's the key and it's a fairly short handout i think you'll have opportunity and hopefully even as we get into those genre studies the stuff here the big framework that we're putting together for you a lot of that will get filled in okay so don't worry if you walk out of here thinking man i got 10 percent of it Success. You've you got some categories forming. That's where it begins. It's just categories are getting formed. All right? So with that, um, let me say something before um, I even end. Today we're going to get into the methodology particularly after we get a few more of these theological uh, con- concerns. And, you know, at the end of the day, while we're going to talk about a methodology of interpreting Scripture— um, probably the most important thing I can do is to say that if if this course helps you to recognize what is a good versus bad commentary, or a good versus bad uh, small group study guide, success. Because at the end of the day, I am going to say to you, you know what? <laughs> Lisa and I were talking about this on the way home yesterday. Um, maybe the 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 the, uh, the take home is going to be to be a little less independent, a little less sort of self-confident in reading scripture and therefore read it with the church, with the community of God. We call it confession. We'll talk about it a little bit in a minute. And to, to understand, therefore, that, that I really do need to uh, find good commentary or good study guides that will help me, those who have done the work of interpretation, because what you're getting here is so limited. I'll just give you an example. When we were studying, there's going to be one little thing called word study. Just one little thing called, you know, do word studies. That was a week-long, I mean, 50-hour exercise when I was in seminary. Just learning how to mine all the sources that makes you understand semantics and the semantic range of how words are used in cultures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, obviously, if you're feeling exasperated, if you're sitting here go, wow, you mean before I lead a small group Bible study, i got to do all seven of these things? And when you start to do it, you realize that it's a full-time job? Exactly. It is. But you will be prepared to have a critical eye towards what's going on here in this little Bible study. And you'll be more alert to it. And to me, that would be huge. Huge. And remember the thesis at the very beginning? We believe deeply here in the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ. That means no one should be lord of your conscience except Jesus Christ. And it is your duty, we read it in our confessional statement, we read it in the scripture from the Bereans, it is your duty to listen, I don't want to say critically if you mean by that cynically, but to, to listen discernibly to sermons. It's to hold your pastors accountable. Show me in scripture, pastor. Where, where does the scripture say this? Because you ought not to obey the voice of your, of your pastor, you obey the voice of God. And what we're wanting you to do in this course is to feel more confident that, gosh, there is, on the one hand, a method. There really is a right and wrong way to read Scripture. And you can feel confident about that. That there really isn't just a matter of one's own interpretation. The meaning, as we have talked about a lot last week, is in the text. Learn how to, to recognize that meaning. And, le- and learn how to help, le- help others help you recognize that meaning. So that's where we're going. I'm going to take a deep breath because I'm in a rush mode. I can feel it. i'm centering as they call it all right let's pray lord thank you for this beautiful family bride of christ thank you for your love for her and i pray father that what we do here is not unrelated to that love uh, that it is meant to and clarify and encourage and, and assist us in knowing how to read our bible both individually but also corporately and lord we pray your spirit would be present that would enable us to have eyes that see and ears to hear what even the best method would not convey except that our spirits are prepared to receive it we pray in christ's name amen all right so last week uh, we looked at uh, the role of the holy spirit i know that's a big topic very summation is we distinguish between what's called revelation and illumination <laughs> revelation is that word the word of God, God speaking through text of scripture it's, it's verbal plenary inspiration, we'll talk more about that in a minute we distinguish that objective word that is in the scripture, it's not in the psychoanalysis of Paul it's not in whatever happens to me when I read the word uh, reader response sort of stuff, it's the spirit, if you want to know the Holy Spirit and how he speaks to us, open your Bible Peter tells us that the scripture is spoken of God by the Holy Spirit. That's where he speaks, and it's sufficient. But that's not to suggest, then, that we can do all this in the flesh, right? We need the Holy Spirit desperately, not only the Holy Spirit that inscripturated the Word of God, that incarnated the Word of God into the text of, of men, as we'll talk about, but also the Holy Spirit that, that affects me subjectively, my heart, that re- gives me the regeneration heart, the illumination of the Spirit as Paul talks about it, wherein these things, however well they're studied, cannot be discerned except by the Spirit. And we need that power of the Holy Spirit to, make, to, to change us that we will see it. And we talked a lot about that, that there is a, there is a um, uh, noetic effect of sin is the big word, but the idea of that meaning that sin has a consequence in how we know what we know. If you understand this big word, epistemology, Well, sin is a very important aspect of that, or righteousness. To the degree that our sin is presuppositions that are informing how I read something, I will hear what I want to hear, you see. Only the Holy Spirit can overcome that and say, I want to hear genuinely what Christ is saying, even if I reduce in order for him to increase. That is counter character as those who've been born in sin. We need the Holy Spirit to change us as we read it. So we distinguish, therefore, illumination from revelation, meaning from significance, if you will. And, um, and, that was, and we looked at the passages, of course, like John and others that anticipated the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we showed how carefully they were worded in a manner that he was speaking to those who would be the founders of the church, wherein those who are, apost- are going to give us the, the apostolic foundation, that is, who are, who are given the, the, the authority in a unique way, the apostolic authority to set the doctrines down, to give us the word of God, that he was speaking to those. And in fact, that's exactly what happened when the apostles came and they gave us Holy Scripture. And so that's where you see the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit will come and speak things to you kind of a thing. Even if we could interpret that as well, that we would be given the gift of discerning that by virtue of illumination. So we made that distinction. That's where we were last week. We're going to pick up now with that. And, uh, but is there one just grooming question about the role of the Holy Spirit that you just didn't get a chance to ask? I'm going to give you a moment to do that if you want. Anything that somebody's just kind of saying, can I just get one more clarification? Because I know it's a big issue in our culture. This is one area where evangelicals have been honestly very, very confused. And what, what gives James Hunter and many, many others who've studied evangelicals that there tends to be a neo-orthodox kind of, of, of way of doing things. The idea that somehow... The scripture becomes a window into the word that happens in me when I read scripture. And therefore, a kind of expressive individualism that comes out in the way we read scripture. Okay? Y'all are hungry. You ready to go? All right. So, let's look at the church. And I'm going to be much more brief here because there are other contexts in our, in our school of discipleship where you can get this. If you've taken theology, for instance, we've covered this. Um, so that's why I'm going to be a little more summarizing because I, I really want to get to the issue at the end of the day, how do you discern the Lord's will in your life in the way that we're going to talk? About? We're going to get something very practical here. So what, what about the church? You know, what does the church do and not do? Well, it doesn't, we're told, add anything to Revelation. And let's be clear about that. Um, the Reformation, as you know, was, was all about sola scriptura. And they saw two great enemies to sola scriptura. One was the confusion of the Holy Spirit vis-a-vis what was called then the Anabaptist tradition, and don't necessarily confuse that with modern-day Baptist. But the Anabaptist tradition was what today we might call the kind of hyper-charismatic, or the hyper-Pentecostal, you know, Pentecostal, the idea of private revelations, dreams, things like that. Um, whereas, the, as you know, the, the Reformation was also concerned about how tradition had become equal to revelation. Now, to be honest, and let's be fair, uh, no tradi- none of the traditions that believed in continuing revelation through ex-cathedra proclamations of the church, none of them would say that, we, that the church has the authority to say anything contrary to Scripture. I hear people say that all the time. Well, you know, it's all right as long as it's not contrary to Scripture. No, because you've got to realize what? The moment you, you elevate something to revelation, a word from God, you have now bound my conscience. You have just added a Lord into my life. And if you're calling it the Lord Jesus Christ, our position in the Reformation position is going to be, no, the Lord Jesus Christ lordship is exclusively located in the words of Scripture. Sola Scriptura. So uh, notice this little quote here then. The Protestant Revolution was not about inspiration or tradition, but over a matter of authority. Who rules our life? Whether the church and its teaching office had the right to impose meanings on the biblical text, which was not itself subject to correction by that text. Protestants held that the scripture was no longer free. Church teaching was silencing biblical teaching. Um, I give you some, you can read this later. I give an example of this in the Council of Trent during that time, um, as well as in the response of that in in the Reformation So what it doesn't do is add revelation. But what does it do? Because ironically today we have such a low view spirituality of the church that I think there's probably more of a reticent to think that it does anything. I don't think most of us are really dealing with Roman Catholicism in our life as much. I mean it's still there. And, And again we have a lot we share with Roman Catholicism. Don't forget I'm not trying to be critical here uh you know if you compare our alignment with roman catholicism say with our alignment with modern the neo-gnosticism that's coming around based on the gnostic text oh my gosh we in roman catholics at least believe that the serpent was bad okay and much more <laughs> so we have about a 99 percent agreement uh that we want to remember now sometimes i think we forget that you know this is a we believe an intramural sort of debate about scripture. Now, an important one, a very important one. Very important one. So I don't diminish that. And and it has radical, radical implications. In fact, if I look for a church when I go anywhere and I tell my children the first thing I tell them to look for is Sola Scriptura. Man, that's the basis. That, that starts the whole train. Because that's how we know God. Now, what does it do, though? Basically, the idea is that... that I'm not going to read this thing cuz I don't like the way I said it. I said it about 10 years ago, the degree more qualified. It's not about qualified. It is that too, but it's more the idea that God it's where did God decree that his word would be guarded. Where what who was the word given to? Him? Was it given to me, Preston Graham, even your pastor? Is it that kind of individualistic cowboy mentality of, of here comes the cowboy, you know, the, the, person, the personality that walks into the sunset and, and saves the day. That's our Western history kind of stuff. It's not biblical. What's biblical is a very communal, the church, Israel, and then later the church is this royal, holy priesthood people who are to guard the faith. Notice this language, You may that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. You will never find a statement like that that says Paul even. Now, he was an apostle, but you just don't, that's not the, the redemptive historical focus of the word of God. The word is always giving to a community, very carefully orchestrated choreographed community called the church. So even if I become incredibly qualified... <laughs> Even if I know everything there is to know about biblical interpretation, and I'm just a great exegete, I'm not the guardian of the truth. The church Jesus Christ is. And the mystery of the mystic communion of Christ by the Holy Spirit with the church. Now, is it a fallible church? Absolutely. But is it, it, so it's not to suggest, again, don't bop up to the other part, that it's infallible, therefore what it says is basically authoritative word of God we don't believe that that's why we're teaching this course so you can the more learned you are about bible interpretation the more critical you're going to be of our sermons I know that it'd be great to keep you kind of naive out there you know when you're hearing a sermon but no that's not what we're going to do here and that's why we're having this class so the use of creeds why do I say creeds and again I'll take this shortly but the creed how then do I read the bible with the church a church that's been existing now for 2,000 years I mean, I, I just, I wished I could get on the phone and call up John Calvin and, and St. You know, Augustine and say, hey, I need to have a, conversa- I need to have a conversation with you. No, what you, it's, that wouldn't even be good, actually, because Calvin wasn't the pillar book of the truth. Neither was St. Augustine. <gasps> it's the church. And what does the church do? Throughout history, all the way back to the Old Testament, the church comes together mostly in ecumenical context and cases of, con- of, of conflict. And they together discern what is their collective consensus about what the scriptures principally teach about various topics of controversy or importance. And as they've done that through the, ver- through the history, they leave us a record. We met together on the fifth day of the fifth century about this issue about Christology. And we discerned the scriptures together. We read it. We studied it. Sometimes studies that lasted years and we came together. I need John to fit into this conversation here. And they formed a consensus. Now, here's what this means, practically. Um, I, you can read, this is a funny little picture here. Uh, this, is, this is, when I was studying in, in Aberdeen, this is a, a graphic that my Roman Catholic historian presented, and I thought, wow, not only is it coming from one that at least will, will challenge my straw man as a, as a Protestant, which I appreciated. But I agree with it right on. And if you can see the difference in the way that we relate to Scripture, what you see here is is this idea of um, the role of the church in interpreting Scripture right there. That's sort of the idea that we're working off of, that there is Scripture, and there is this tradition, and then there is us, and we're all reading it together. There's the individual, the corporate, and the Holy Scripture, and, and we do this in a manner that allows us to read scripture with our church, and so if you see that tradition arrow, the idea being that okay, let's say you and I, um, as you're going to see in a minute, I'm going to put as a distinct step in biblical interpretation. There is a distinct step that I, I, I pray every pastor uses every week. Here, I know we try. But there's a distinct step once we've come to conclude what the scripture is, is that we compare it. What is our the conclusion we're deriving from the scripture? We want to compare that with what the church has historically uh, said about this particular doctrine or issue. There's a step where we say, let's just check this. Am I off the reservation here? Now, it's to be true. There's going to be the scripture is much more, an exegetical sermon is going to be much more nuanced than any creed. The creed doesn't even get close to mining all the jewels, which is why we have the weekly exposition of scripture. Doesn't even get close. And there are nuances that abound. But we have a lot of great guide rails that tell me, whoop, I can't quite go that far, because to do that, I just became a Rastian. And the church ruled again. get, now, is the church authoritative in the sense that thus saith the church? No. It gives me great pause. And what does this mean, by the way? Let me show you how this works. I'm I'm under authority. I've taken vows to read Scripture with the church. That's what ordination is, by the way. That's why you don't go to church where they're not ordained, because they've never taken a vow to read Scripture with the church and under the authority of the church. And so now you're reading Scripture with the church, and I come to a conclusion from Scripture that seems to indicate that "Mm, I think I'm going to have to take issue with with what the church has historically believed. That's valid. You can do that. But, but, huge, pregnant, but, I would submit that to the church. And there would be yet another process that I would engage with the church, reading scripture to discern whether or not this is a valid issue such that we need to change our confession. Change our, you know, and there's a process that goes through in our system, the various levels of courts. And an appellate system that says, okay, we're going to, and we're going to, imagine all that working for you. All that's working for you, you know? And you, as a congregation, have the right of of questioning the teaching of the church, especially if you can show where the teaching of the church is off the reservation. Now, when I say the reservation, I could list you, I mean, you know, 29 articles, Westminster, Heidelberg. You know, I could just go on and on, Anglican, Ruth. I mean, we all agree on about 99% of it, those kinds of confessions. I mean, we're not talking about weirdo stuff here. (laughs) A guy named Philip Schapp did his amazing history of of creeds, three volumes. And he concluded that you could put them on top of each other like an overlay. And and, and most of the major doctrines, if not many of the minor doctrines, they agree. We are different, and it's important that we recognize those differences and we are able to worship in our different denominations. But a denomination is an ecumenical concept. Do you know that? It's a way of understanding that just because you're not in that church doesn't mean you're outside of the church. If you don't agree with denominationalism, what you're saying is there's only one church, and if you're not in that, you're out of the church. You see? So there's a a good side to denominationalism, and that this side of heaven, it's a concession of of humility. Now, there's some bad stuff about denominationalism, too. How much of our distinctions are not really scripture but cultural, for instance? How much of this denomination, to be self-critical, is Scottish, which is no grounds for unity in my estimation, or yours? And how much of it is... A, a context wherein there was an ecumenical council in, in, in England that, that we adhere to as a very faithful ecumenical council. That's the latter. We do think Westminster is a very good and faithful con- uh, a confessional statement, along with many others. But how much bleeds into that? Scottishisms. And so there's always a need to kind of cri- you know, be critical of denominations insofar as they tend to get attached to culture wars and culture and nation-state issues. But there's all, and that's why I need to be apolitical. That's another conversation. <laughs> but that's what we mean. So that's, that's the role of the church, both the good use of the church and the bad use of the church. Any questions on that one? Okay, I'm going to go a little quicker, believe it or not. This is getting to be a lecture, but that's all right. I like lectures personally. I used to hate seminars. No, I mean, I know y'all thought I was talking about me and I was being crass. No, I meant from your point of view. I used to hate seminars and and academics. Man, I came to hear the professor. I don't like hearing all the students talk all the time. And I said that to Walter once when I was in there, but it was fun. But anyway, I I hope that's helpful to you. But I do want you to interact when you want to, please. Confusion about priesthood believers. I'm going to say this very quickly. You can read. There's some great quotes here. The confusion is this. What the priesthood of believers is not is the everyone a minister. If you mean by that, everyone has, has equal right and access to be teachers of the scripture. It's not the prophecyhood of believers. Historically, and I give you a great quote here by Owen that, would, that really was one of the prominent believers of it. Um, the, uh, let me see where that quote is. Let's see here. Where's my quote from? I mean, there's some great scripture uh, quotes here. Rick Lentz, Fabric of Theology. Um, uh, there it is all faithful ministers of the gospel inasmuch as they are engrafted into Christ and are true believers may as all other true Christians be called priests okay, but this inasmuch as they are members of Christ not ministers of the gospel it respecteth their persons not their function or not them as such now what is he saying the priesthood of believers is the idea that as Christians we all have un. Mediated, if you if you will, access to Christ our Priest. That we do not need an intermediary priest to pray, and we do have access to the Word of God that comes to us through Holy Scripture. That's not then in this, and again, I don't have the chance. I, I could, I may, may even have put it in here. Yeah, the Ephesians four passage is often used. You know that the role of the pastors to make everybody a minister. That is just wrong if we mean by minister. It's just, you just got to go look at this study. There's a great article, biblical studies article in in Jets, uh, the Journal of of Evangelical Theology, that does this by a guy named T. David Gordon. And, um, I mean, now that's become very uh, passe among most, uh, I would say, orthodox scholars. But that became very popularized, of course, in America, democratization stuff. And so it's it's not to demean the believers. Yes, every believer joins into this priestly community we call the church. Peter calls it the royal holy priesthood. That's a great passage. And in Romans 12, it talks about your spiritual service of worship, and you'll notice that everyone has a service that's, that's a service of worship. In that sense, you could say you're all priests. But the very point that Paul makes in Romans 12 is not that everyone's a teacher or that everyone's a leader or that everyone's a, you know, this servant, whatever it is. The very point of Romans 12 is that we should know that not all of us have the same gifts. And so, again, this is a radical example of where we individualize Scripture and we don't look at the y'all that's for you. There's a plural there. You, plural, are the priest. The church, plural, is the evangelist of God. And every work that you do that serves the interest of this holy Catholic church is a priestly work. With, that has direct, in, uh, direct access to Christ and Christ through them in their ministry. This is really great, by the way, because uh, the wrong view of priesthood has made good Christians feel that if they, could, if they really want to serve God, they've got to be a Bible study leader or they've got to be a, a pastor or a missionary. How many people have I ministered over the years that are so beautifully, beautifully sincere that have been led by the priesthood doctrine indirectly or directly to demean a service that is not a teaching ministry or that is not a whatever ministry. Now, therefore, you've got to read it carefully. We believe that the evangelist of God in this world is the church corporately. It's what we do communally together. And together in the world but not of the world we are drawing people to Christ. We become a priestly mediator between the world and Christ. But it's you, plural. Again, I like that southern draw. Law, y'all are the priest. And that's a very important distinction between that and that's what he's saying. You are individually all together. Yes, the pastor is one of, the, one of those who are part of the priesthood, as says Owens. But as his person in Christ, not as his office. You see? Now, we're, that, that's interesting because this, this is partly why our tradition, at least, has resisted the idea of calling pastors priests as to distinguish the priesthood of all believers. Now, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be critical of those traditions who do call their pastors priests and I'm certainly not going to suggest that necessarily they would ar- debate anything I just said. You know, so it's just something that's come down in history and that's, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> You know, I've learned a long time ago, let's let's come on, let's loosen up here. You know, the slippery slope argument about somebody that uses a name doesn't mean he necessarily means that, that by it. You know, and so we got to be careful there. So I get into that by Ephesians 4. You can read it. It really gives you why we would judge Ephesians 4 that way. This passage is very important in 1 Peter 2. Make sure you read it. The you not each, you know, individual or corporate. I talked about that already. There's some scripture for you. So, I want to stop there, and the next, this is where we're going to kind of really focus the rest of our discussion on inspiration. But any questions about priesthood? What it isn't and is. It is that everyone are priests before God corporately as they participate in the priestly community of Christ, the royal holy priesthood, which is the church. Not that everyone's called to be a quote minister, if you mean by minister uh, that you are a teacher necessarily or a preacher. Okay? All right, next. Now, inspiration. Big confusion. And this is what uh, we really need to talk about. What is the doctrine of inspiration? Well, here's one definition for you. The process in which the words of Scripture are made by the Holy Spirit, working through responsible human agents to be revelatory, without usurping the personality and mind of the writers. It's a creative work of the Holy Spirit through human instruments. Now, The biblically stated is often used in 2 Timothy 3. And oftentimes, I don't know how, there are many English translations, but if you really look carefully at that word in the Greek, it means literally God breathed. And the reason that's significant is the word always has an association with a creative activity in Scripture. That it's a, it's a creative act. You know, the Lord spoke and things happened. Okay, you know, in the beginning is the word. And the word, what, created everything. So what you're saying is that this scripture is supernaturally created. That's the point. And what's interesting is it's not Paul. Paul isn't God-breathed. It's not the reader who is God-breathed. Liberalism, and I, I say that word, look, Christians are liberals, by the way. Okay. When I say liberalism, I don't mean necessarily a guy or a girl who's not Christian. These these are theological debates within denominations. Okay? So let's be loose. Let's don't don't hear me trying to be a witch hunter here. Okay. You can be Christian and be liberal and you're, and and misinformed, just as we can be whatever we are. I don't like calling myself an evangelical. I don't like calling myself a fundamentalist. What am I? I hope I'm just orthodox. I'm classical. I don't know. But whatever we are, we all have errors. So let's this isn't meant to be a witch hunt but it, I'm, I'm distinguishing between schools of thought, and it's not personal. And when I do that, um, liberalism classically is an exercise of the scripture being utilized as kind of a window into the kerygma or word that is in Paul and his experience. Uh, you, you, the, the, the demythologizing exercise, the where's the, wor- where's the real word in scripture kind of thing. Where do we get rid of the myths and where do we find the real charisma Through the word scripture. So you see, where's the charisma, the kernel of truth? It's in Paul. we got to go back th- through the word to Paul and define that. And while we all don't believe in resurrections, Paul might have had a little bit of a social myth going on about resurrections. What was really happening there is that Jesus came and there was a real Easter experience going on there. Okay, that's a ben- d- uh, very demeaning way of saying it. I, I apologize. Um, something like that god breathed peter it's not a matter of private interpretation so that that's the first peter says it's not a matter of private interpretation i don't know how you can read that and understand that would be what i'd say a a passage against neo-orthodoxy the idea that we have a new hermeneutic reader response i read scripture and if what happens to me when i read it is the real word of god That's a gross confusion of what we call meaning and significance. What's the summary then of a biblical view? It's verbal, which means words. The words are inspired. We were talking yesterday. Some of you were here. I think it was you that made a good point, or somebody did, and uh, that, you know, Paul probably There's, there's a good consensus I'm not, I'm, It's, it's a debatable, but there's a, a good Line of thought that, that says that, that The early writers of the New Testament Really had believed that the coming of Christ Was imminent, and by imminent they mean before they died And one Example of that, of course, that was talked about Is in Corinthians where Paul says, you know, look He's talking about the, the coming of Christ And the nearness of it, the imminency of it He says, therefore, it's my opinion He says it's not the word, scripture, but my opinion It's best not to marry and some have taken that to mean, okay, but the point is, is the scripture doesn't say that. You see? What, what matters is what actually got inscripturated. The scripture gives us consistently a, 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 a spirituality that says we live in urgent days. There's an urgency to the task these days, in the, in the last days, the days between Christ's first and second coming. And that urgency is such that it would even be worthy of remaining celibate to do the job, to be invested in it that way. And that's that's a very good exegetical argument. But it's not mandated of God, not not I say it, to the Lord or it says Paul, but not the Lord, but me, he says right there. That's just my personal advice. And so that's an example of where we distinguish between Paul and the Word, and then again. If I come to you and I say the Lord gave, a, I had a word from God reading scripture. I was impressed with being celibate, which I did think two times breaking up with Lisa. Bless her heart. Two freaking times I broke up with this woman. Can you believe that stupidity? <laughs> Trying to be celibate. And she kept convincing me, thank God, and I'm the greatest convincing thing you've ever done in your life. Praise God you did that. It would have been miserable. Totally against my nature. But um, anyway, so, so yeah, that's that, but, but how it, very quickly it could become, well, this is what spiritual people do, as if a conscientious thing. So that's very, very important. Um, plenary, which means all the scriptures are canonical, as in a rule of faith. Confluent, big word, very important, that, it doesn't, that scripture doesn't lose the humanity I mean, if you're reading the Greek text, Kevin can tell you, others can tell you, it's pretty, I mean, you can just, pre- when you've really started to read it, man, you're reading John, and you're reading Paul, and you hardly even recognize the same voice. I mean, they're that different. Paul and John, for instance. Peter's the first to acknowledge that Paul writes in a very heady way, he says things that Paul writes sometimes are hard to understand. So that makes you feel good, doesn't it, that Peter said that about Paul? Um, the other day someone was telling me how much they've enjoyed Esther and they say to be honest all these epistles they, they're just not as accessible sometimes it's so nice to hear a story and you know okay that's true but that's not to minimize Paul I wouldn't go to Esther for nothing to divine to describe to, uh, to develop my confession of faith if I want to know uh, what's the constitution of the church I'm going to Paul man he, he thinks like that but, it, but there's things that I go to for Esther of course So confluent, we don't believe that inspiration is God's dictation theory. God's writing in the heavens, and they looked up and saw it, and they wrote it down. We don't believe that there was an audible, necessarily an audible voice. So there were moments of audible voices that came down from heaven, we're told, baptism in Christ, etc. But for the most part, it's not some audible voice. We believe that God worked through the history of those writers, the language group of those writers. When I say human, I mean you're bringing in semantics, cultural semantic range common to that day. You're bringing in their language group. You're bringing in the history, what was going on in Rome. You're bringing in where they're located in a covenant context. All that stuff becomes very important when you're interpreting Scripture because there's a humanness to it. Even if the Scripture ultimately is the authority and we interpret Scripture with Scripture. There's a danger, too. For instance, it's very helpful when you're studying Romans to understand the Maccabean, post-Maccabean context and a lot of the kind of writings that were going on related to that context, that 400-year period, you know, before Christ came. And there's a lot going on in Judaism that happened in those, those 400 years, and it's worth knowing something about it, but I would never rely an interpretation of Scripture based on some source like the Apocrypha. That was, reading, read, uh, that was written during the time. You see the difference? We'd look at it. It might help us to understand things. But ultimately, meaning, what the scripture means, is encoded in the verbal words themselves. Words that are put into syntactical formations. Words that are put into something that you can do a discourse analysis, we call it. Or what used to call what a word, uh, what, what do you call it in sixth grade? The uh, word Flow, word flow, conjugations, yes, that helps. That's more words. Yeah, word flows, What I mean, sentence flows, diagrams, diagrams yes. All good stuff, but you can take it too far. You know, you're going to have to look at what's saying here, what the context is, what's the theme of this book. You'll get into that. So you see how important it is. So so what exactly is inspired? We've talked about the liberal Protestant view. Uh, we've talked about the New Orthodox view. We believe the words are view. in summary. So how would you apply this to to interpretation? Here's where we make a a, a nice little segue. Take everything we've said about Holy Spirit, church, priesthood of believers, and inspiration. And what we're going to say at the end of the day is the only infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. That is so important. Um, And it's going to tell you something. With the words of men part of it, all right, the Bible consists of many books. represent many histories and each history is important i don't think you could understand esther without going back and getting a little bit of history of what's going on in persia all right and you got a lot of that who wrote the book these are questions you're asking now i'm doing what are the specific words of interest used in its own vernacular context what if you see a word showing up over over and over again okay that's you know if you've listened to me preach for 20 something years god bless you i feel sorry for you but But I'm sure they're euphemisms. I'm sure they're things. I hear them in Kevin, too. I see Kevin's style. They're coming out. And you're going to say, now, how does Kevin use that word? How does Preston use that word? You know, he uses words that sometimes I know, I'm starting to figure them out. He's wanting to shock me a little bit. So take a deep breath. You're thinking to yourself, he's trying to shock me. Here's one of those shocking ways of saying things. And let's just tone it down. He didn't, he didn't go off the bridge. I hope that's what you're doing at least. But what are you doing? You're learning how to listen to me. You're learning how to listen to Kevin or whoever else is teaching and preaching. Same thing with Paul. How does he use those words? Where would you know? You would look at where he uses it otherwise in Scripture. Context begins to narrow it down. What are the cultural norms, expectations in that day? No, they don't interpret Scripture, but they at least let you know what could have been going on. What's happened with this hair covering thing? what was going on there and look at carefully that scripture it's interesting how paul makes a makes reference to a cultural custom but he doesn't argue for the custom he argues for what the custom is meant or what in that day the custom is meant to convey and see that's that's what you're looking for what are the historical circumstances surrounding the book and how does it purposely fit into it What were the political factors? To whom was the book written? What were the problems, issues being targeted? Was there a controversy? What are the major theological themes emphasized in this book? Do you see repetitions, patterns, cycles? What is the specific genre of the book? That tells you a lot. Is it a narrative? You read narratives differently than you read epistles. And you read epistles differently than you read apocalyptic literature. They all were like, it's no difference to say if if someone's writing you poetry today, you read poetry differently than you read a math textbook. Right? (laughs) Paul's the math textbook. Poetry is uh, obviously the Psalms. And you're going to read them differently. You're going to read in a way that says, okay, poetry's meant to do this. And there's these rhymes, and there are these parallelisms, and these parallelisms are meant... That's where the meaning is in that. How do you read the Gospels? What was the use of, of historical narrative in those days? You're going to learn when you talk about the Gospels. The Gospels, is not, it's, it's all historical, but it's not intended to be a history. It's meant to be a theology about history. And the way you redact, the way you edit that history, the way you tell a story is going to tell you what the emphasis of that unique author is. That's really important. That's exciting. So John gets you to the Ascension teachings in chapter 13. Half the book. Whereas in Matthew, it's, it's almost an epilogue. And Luke writes two Gospels, Acts and Luke, and all focusing on this really amazing thing he says about, it all hinges on baptism in some ways. So there's just incredible things that you can learn. So actually, when people come, you'll learn this in the Gospels, but when people come and say, oh, what do you do with all those discrepancies between you know, the Gospel of this and the Gospel of that? I'll say, I celebrate them. Those become the things that go, aha, ha, this is the clue to what this guy's talking about. Because this is not about... I mean, the fact that the, the tree was withered on the way to Jerusalem, and I think it was uh, Mark, and it was after Jerusalem, I think, and whatever is was, Matthew, says something to me about what's he trying to emphasize about what's going on in the death of Christ. Why did he put it here, not here? It's kind of like what I do when I tell a story about a hunting or fishing trip. I'll come back, and and I, I might very selectively put things into the story where they're going to highlight what I want you to go wow about and that's just that's just good theology and there you go you see so these are all examples of what it means to take the the human aspect of this confluence with the holy spirit in writing scripture but if you stop there you would just be in bank you would you be in a crash wreck and 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 modern uh scholarly history has, has demonstrated that i think uh we don't believe we believe ultimately there's one author one author that therefore makes us look for continuity that starts from genesis all the way through revelations we're going to say there is there's some there's a theme here and you're going to see these themes like a good novel now i'm reading the bible like a novel not like like different published books that are out in the bookstore, now I'm reading the Bible like one single book that's a novel. And, uh, you know, I think of uh, some of my favorite mysteries. And, you, you know, you're just reading those first chapters, man, and everything that's going on in those first chapters. Ah, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that's going to mean. But it's all vague and mysterious and everything's cool. By the time you get to the last chapter, now you see why this little shadow thing was all so important back here. You see, that's the way the Bible's written. There's a redemptive history, one history of one revelatory uh, uh, God, revealing in these these, uh, developmental stages of history what it is that's going to save humanity. It's just beautiful. And so we're going to start talking now, when we talk about reading the book covenantally, we're going to look for these major redemptive historical themes. We're also going to talk a lot about covenant. And where is this passage Positioned in relationship to the covenant, are you getting the understanding about this? So we're going to talk more about covenant redemptive reading next week. But here's what I'd want to say then about um, this last point I make, and then we're going to look at the the, the, the last thing. Is um, read this section, please read this, but don't don't you know? There's this little modernist sort of credo out there that if you can't understand something completely, you don't understand it at all. That's such bull. Um, how many of you have been married? You understand your wife or husband yet? No. No. I, I, got, I got Lisa. I, I'm, I'm getting her now. It's been, oh, man, I sure got myself in a mess. How long? <laughs> 33? 33. I'm close. 33 years. But I tell you, it's not uncommon where I think, man, she just defies me and everything I was expecting here. I mean, it happened just yesterday. I told her about it. Just yesterday, there was something she did. I went, I didn't expect that one from you. That was not what I expected. You know, I'm surprised. Well, that's, that's the same thing. You know, I, you don't have to, I don't have to be a zoologist to understand enough about that big old fat, elk, whatever tree, copper elm or whatever it is, that I can't run into it. All right? So I'm going to avoid it. I'm not going to walk into it. I know trees. But I don't know a zoologist way of knowing trees or whatever it is. Okay, so here's where we're going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to ask five more minutes to show you something. A basic method summarized. Pray. Have access to several versions if possible. Why? Because remember, this is an, there are, what you read in the Bible, the English Bible, is a translation. And there are different types of translation, and I'm sure one of us will get to that later. Pick your passage. That's actually a very important thing to do. How would you, is there a discernible beginning and end to the point? And what would you need in that passage to get it? It's called a pericope. Do a general study of the whole book of the Bible first. Now you're starting to get overwhelmed. You've got to teach a Bible study next week, right? But now you've got to do a theology of who wrote the book. Why was it written? All these questions go into what we call a a book study. See all that? Okay. Look at it. (laughs) Go get a good commentary. And read, read the introduction to the book in that commentary, and, and it'll do great va- things for you. Immediate context. Sentence flow, or something like it. Analyze the, the, the language and how it's written. It'll be different for different genre. Again, we'll talk about that. Are there particular words you need to go back and figure out what to do? And you're going to learn one of the greatest fallacies of word studies, what's called the root word fallacy. Bad, 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 bad. Okay, Words are semantic they they are culturally determined you've heard me say it many times my kids say that's sick and it took me about a half a year to figure out that they're not sick all right words are meanings relative to the use in that day and there's a way to find that theme comparisons do you see a theme in this passage where do you see that theme in other scriptures go there we're talking about sin. What does other scriptures teach about sin? Do some comparative analysis with other scriptures, in other words. Discern and understand the passage within the covenant. What covenant are we in? If we're in an earlier covenant, how does that covenant relate to the next covenant, as in the new covenant? And we're going to talk about that next week. Draft a main point. Every scripture has a point, even if there are many subpoints. But there's a point. What is it? compare your point, doctrine, to the church consensus about what the scriptures principally teach about that point. Main main point is, all have fallen, sin, and fallen short of the glory of God. Your original sin is rejecting God. Now, is that right? Let's go look at what the church has said over the course of 2,000 years about what sin is and see if I'm getting it right. And if I'm not, it doesn't mean that I'm wrong and they're wrong but it would be an incredible exercise of hubris for me, by myself, without any process to say, screw 2,000 years, I'm right. And I hear stuff like that all the time. Significance. How does it then relate to our lives? I had a pastor, professor once when we did exegetical uh, papers, and that was a major event in our lives when we did these things, and he said most of you are going to do great on your exegesis, but he required that we would put in our paper at the end, what would you infer from this passage about its significance today? He said, most of you are going to fail because of that. Because you're going to take this little idea and then you're going to be so creative that it's not an inference from the scripture necessarily. You're going to go off to everything you can say. And you may even say things that are really good to say. All right? But it doesn't come from that scripture. And if you're interested and rebuilding confidence in in Scripture to your people, then don't do it, even if you can get away with it. And you can't get away with it. In fact, we're even encouraged to do it. Make this applicable, Pastor. Okay, man, I don't know. I mean, this just, just says, you know, the inference is praise God. And they're going, oh, man, tell me how to live tomorrow. Okay. You know, and off I go. And you applaud me for it the next day. Wow, that was really good, Pastor. And maybe I've just diminished, though, your confidence. And Holy Scripture speaking, thus saith the Lord. So the use of Scripture in ministry, I'm not going to talk about. This talks about sermons, but you can at least see what a good sermon should look like generally. And man, I wish you wouldn't read that. I just don't want you to read it. Use of Scripture in leading a small group Bible study by directed discussion. Read that if you're thinking about being a small group Bible study. This talks about especially when and how to, how to if, especially if it's an inductive study, when to ask questions and what kind of questions when. That's really important. It's where a lot of stuff gets messed up. And then finally, and this is where I want to end, thank you all for your patience, kids. I'm going to take one more minute here. The use of Scripture in the discerning the Lord's will. Now, I'm going to just open up a can of worms for you, and you can go home and talk about it over dinner. But, you know, there's, there's, if you understand what we're talking about here, what we're really getting at is we believe, listen to this, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture as a rule, only rule of faith and practice. Let me say that again. I believe, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture as an only rule of faith and practice. It doesn't need to be complemented and supplemented as my rule of faith and practice. A lot of evangelicals, and I'm, I'm, I'm parroting literally the liberal and neo-orthodox manner, a lot of evangelicals will, will say, yeah, I'm with you, pastor. But then here's what happens. View number one. I'm looking to know God's will. There is no divine blueprint, i.e. there is no specific will from God. Do the best you can. Liberalism. View two. There is a divine blueprint, and it is our duty to find it. Two methods. The charismatic method says the blueprint revealed in word and another word. The landscape design, the letter of basic constructions which an architectural drawing gives us. We follow the architectural drawing that come to me from a dream. Mainstream, the blue point revealed in word and sign. This is what I hear a lot. I had to be a sign. We watched the last five minutes or something of, of Sleepless in Seattle. We are suckers for these little – I'm, I'm going to show a really weak side to me here. But, but we're suckers of these little uh, romantic comedies. They're just cute. And this was an old one. Do you remember at the very end – she saw a heart in the, in the uh, statue of whatever it was, and she oh, it's a sign. That's what I hear we do all the time. It's a sign. You, you are an Anabaptist in, in Calvin's day. You are believing in continuing revelation. It's a sign. No, it doesn't reveal anything as a rule of faith and practice. It might get your attention. And it might prompt you to think about Scripture and how it might lead you to go to that, that uh, Empire State Building because it's the wise thing to do, but it ain't revelatory. So here's the way we look at it, the right way. There is a divine blueprint, but it is mostly kept secret to us, and we discover the way that we are to go step by step in the discovery of divine wisdom. What does divine ris- wisdom assume? God has a specific and detailed plan for each Christian's life. There is a blueprint. It is a specific blueprint. He decrees all things whatsoever that comes to pass, right? God does not reveal it at all at once. It would be toxic. It would overwhelm us. It would destroy us. If God told me that the way for my sanctification is i got to go through this, 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 before I went through it, I'm out of there. Didn't have the faith yet to do it. Scripture doesn't speak to everything directly, listen, but Scripture is sufficient for divine wisdom even for the least of things by biblical wisdom applied. There is an individual and specific plan for every Christian, but it is strictly and intentionally kept secret. God does not normally reveal anything about it to us. It is information that is for now at least for God's use alone as he directs the affairs of our life. We simply discover it after the fact. Our responsibility, though, is to live according to divine wisdom. And let me give you an example of a dark room, and I'll close with this. So you go into a dark room, right? The first two of you assumes that there's darkness, and therefore I need a guiding hand to lead us through the unfamiliar dark room. I'm looking for some, something that comes and tells me a word from God, a blueprint, uh, or some kind of an architectural design, or something, right? The charismatic, for instance, might say, okay, I'm in a dark room. How am I going to make my way through the dark room? By audible or supernatural instructions, turn right, turn left, stop, go. A word from the Lord, dreams, divine intuition, strong senses. We're listening for more of a revelation to tell us what to do. The mainstream Christian, it's going to be by shuffling along with a stick, seeking the clues of where and what walls turn left or right. Just kind of doing this. What we're going to say, and, and this is kind of funny, It takes into account the things that he or she has learned over the years about rooms and knows that most rooms in the 20th century have light switches near the door and use it so that we walk in light even though the light doesn't tell us where to walk straight and turn. We have the light to know the way. That light, according to Scripture, is your word of God. We know that life is the room of my life. And I know that the Word of God speaks to it somehow, somewhere, and I'm going to take that worldview of Scripture that must be developed over years and years and years. That's why wisdom is not a proof-texting kind of method. And over years of discerning and reading and studying Scripture, you become wiser and wiser and wiser, which is why you need to look and interpret God's will for your life with a community because now you have the, cons- the collective wisdom of a community when you make decisions in your life. And that's why scripture talks a lot about counsel. I'm very sorry for going late. I hope it was worth it. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. I didn't drink one sip of my coffee. <laughs> that is how intense that was.